You don't have a, uh, a drink for yourself? I do for here. Like your own drink? No. Oh, do you want the whole thing? There's no... Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you want the whole thing? You said that was mine. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Okay. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, the podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics you were told not to discuss in Polite Company. My name is Jose. And my name is Christina. In this episode, I will be joined by Matt Capodacano, a staff apologist for Where Peter Is, a prolific writer, a husband, and a father. We will be talking today about racism, particularly uh, the recent surge in anti-Asian attacks uh, in recent months. And uh, we'll also talk about the problem with Apu. It's a great discussion, so please stay tuned. First, let's talk about what we have on tap. What do you have, babe? Well, I finally uh, am able to get my lips on uh, some lizard's mouth here. Your lips on some lizard's mouth. (laughs) Um, Which you so uh, affectionately wanted to split with me. (laughs) It's delicious. But I had three of the four, so... It's mine! Yes. You can't have it! <laughs> and I'm finishing off our last white claw here. <laughs> what, what? You can yeah. stick with the white claw. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Mm. Yeah. White claw. Hard seltzer. Ooh. I feel like we also have a lot of fig on this podcast. Yeah. We should really start charging them for this free advertising. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. Sugar. Now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about or mildly interested in for about two minutes, though we tend to be chatterboxes, so that's not a strict time limit. This week I'm talking uh, with Matt about the sin of racism, so I wanted to begin uh, my Fred Talk about the diversity of the body of Christ. The Catholic Church, just looking at the demographics, has about 1.2 billion people around the globe. About 41% are in Latin America, with Brazil having uh, the highest percentage of Catholics. 24% of the world's Catholics live in Europe, and Italy is the most uh, densely populated by Catholics. Uh, And there are 7% in North America. Uh, There are also about 137 million Catholics in Asia, making up about 12% of the church. Uh, One of the regions with the fastest growing population of Catholics is in Africa, where there are over 155 million Catholics. So this diversity of cultures, races, and places of origin uh, reflects the unity of the body of Christ. Think about how a body has hands and feet and fingers and eyes and ears and mouth and a nose, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. (laughs) Unfortunately... Uh, we see a segment of Christians, including people in positions of leadership, who are increasingly either okay with racism or are just in absolute denial about the existence of racism, right? They're, they're burying their heads in the sand. So if we read Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, he puts it like this. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We need one another on our humble walk with God, and we all need to understand that each person is made in the image and likeness of God. So racism, in a very real sense for the Christian, for the God-fearer, racism is blasphemy. It's an offense against God uh, to direct hatred and prejudice um, against another person for any reason, but especially for their appearance, for their racial or ethnic or any other category. We have to love one another, as Jesus commanded. And that means we also have to respect the dignity of each person. Uh, Racism must be rooted out because it's a cancer on the body of Christ. So it's got to be cut out from the depths of our heart. It's got to be cut out um, of the flesh, 
of our body. It, it's just evil. It, it's evil. And we got to root it out. So anyway, that's my Fred talk. What about you? What's your Fred talk? My Fred talk is on um, the sugar substitute maltitol. And, you know, this year I've made a concerted effort to start watching what I eat and I'm active. I'm going for, you know, daily or every other day, like walks for miles and, you know, just have a real genuine um, <laughs> goal of just eating clean. Right. And so, you know, one of those things is for me wanting to cut out sugar and also my carb intake. And so um, for Valentine's Day, I mean, you know, I love dark chocolate and I love mm -hmm. in particular C's candy dark chocolate. But, you know, with this year and, and my goals, I was like just... They have sugar-free. They have sugar-free dark chocolate. So just get me a little bit of that, and and I'll be satisfied. That'll just be my treat, you know, for myself. And so I'm looking at the dark chocolate bar, and I'm like, okay, what kind of sugar substitute did they have in it um, that makes this quote-unquote sugar-free? And so it said maltitol. I'm like, okay. Let me research this mm -hmm. because I know not all sugar substitutes are created equal. In fact, they can, some of them can spike your blood sugar uh, despite the fact being, quote, sugar free. Yeah. And I've, I've never heard of maltitol. Yeah. It's pretty popular in a lot of packaged mm -hmm. things like protein bars or um, things of that nature. So the candy, for instance. Those sugar-free chocolate chips that mm. I bought, the Hershey um, sugar-free chocolate chips, that has maltitol in it. Those were good. Those were delicious. And they are. I'm like, oh my God, I found something that is like great, sugar-free. Um, I can now bake with confidence knowing that I have a substitute or replacement that tastes just as delicious as if I were making the real deal. Wah, wah. <laughs> Yeah. As I'm researching maltitol, it's not so great. Um, it can, in fact, spike your blood sugar. Um, there are just... And maltitol is a sugar alcohol um, substitute, just for those who aren't familiar with it. But some of the side effects are indigestion and nausea, gas, bloating, bubble guts, <laughs> diarrhea, stomach pain... Higher blood sugar, weight gain. So all the things. So all the things I'm trying to like steer away from. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, these can potentially be, you know, the side effects. And so it, it tastes good. But I mean, I, I do kind of get a little bit of a tummy ache if I eat too much of it. So just I think from here on out, I am going to steer clear of the maltitol and there are far better sugar substitutes out there that I'll be using on my journey. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't just natural sugar be better than like an artificial one? Technically, yes, but not when it comes to blood sugar mm. and wanting to keep tabs on that and also um, the carbs. Oh. You know, like a lot of people, I'm not doing keto, but a lot of people who do keto, mm -hmm. you know, sugar's a no-no um, and carbs are no-no. Yeah. So those are two things that I just kind of, I need to steer clear from right now. And uh, by swapping maltitol out for real sugar is just not an option for me at this point. So, mm -hmm. but there are other things out there that don't have bad effects and don't spike your blood sugar and all yeah. that stuff so that's yeah. cool that you're going through this process of researching alternatives yeah so that's good yeah. healthy yeah that's the goal All right, so in our main segment here, we are joined by Matt Capodacano, and you are 
Twitter famous, in my estimation, uh, but you are also uh, the chaplain of Where Peter Is. And today you're joining me to discuss kind of this anti-Asian sentiment uh, that we have been really dealing with, I think, for the first time as a nation. Uh, and so you and I are going to discuss that today. Um, why don't you go ahead and for our listeners, just give us um, a brief background on your life. Absolutely. And Jose, thank you for inviting me to your show. I'm not only a guest, but I'm also an avid subscriber and fan. So really, really honored to join you and, and also honored for your friendship, knowing you for the past, call it six to nine months. So yeah. grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So about me, um, first and foremost, I'm a cradle Catholic. And that surprised a lot of people because I'm also Indian American, East Indian. So a lot of people, when they associate Indians, they think Hindu, they think Sikh, Muslim, maybe even Buddhist, but not Catholic, let alone Christian. But the reality is, and a lot of Catholics don't even know this, St. Thomas the Apostle came to South India, namely the state of Kerala, where my parents are from. Right after the resurrection and Pentecost, he kind of went along a trade route down to Syria and he um, brought Christianity there. And from Syria, he followed the trade route down to South India. And then he also introduced Christianity there. He eventually got martyred in, in South India. And in South India, there's a, a Eastern Catholic rite known as the Cyril Malabar rite. So it's kind of the, that same tradition from St. Thomas and from the East Syrian church. So that's what uh, my parents are a part of. And that's also technically what I'm a part of. But uh, you know, I was born here in the U.S. in Louisiana. Basically, my dad came to the U.S. in the 70s, got his MBA, and then uh, married my mom in 79, and then she came over shortly after. And we moved around a lot, uh, settled in outside of Los Angeles in Southern California. I have two younger sisters, and uh, we just kind of uh, lived a faith in the home in the sense that my dad... Um, really had a strong sense of the faith and wanted us as a family to have it. We used to pray together as a family every night. And um, when I was calling junior high, I went on uh, retreats, um, uh, charismatic retreats, life and spirit type retreats with my family. And so that really uh, got me deeply involved in the faith. Uh, when I was in junior high and high school, I was, uh, our family started going to a very conservative parish and I really gained an appreciation for the sacraments, for the Eucharist, for um, Marian devotion. And I went off to uh, college at Creighton University, a Jesuit school in Omaha. So what's interesting is growing up, I was mainly surrounded by, in, in elementary schools, mainly surrounded by Mexican-Americans in one elementary school, another Filipino-American. This were both Catholic schools. And I went to high school and both the city I lived in and the high school I went to went in. It's mainly Asian Americans, namely Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, and Indian Americans. So I went off to college in the Midwest and I had a whole different experience. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was still diverse in the sense that there were um, relative to the rest of Omaha. I mean, there were a lot of international students. There were a lot of Asian Americans and Indian Americans at the university, but you know, it was Omaha. So a uh, very different experience, but I gained a deeper appreciation of the faith through the various resources that were at the school. I, even though the Jesuits ran Creighton, I was more so interested in contemplative spirituality. So I actually spent time discerning with a religious order based in Omaha that followed kind of a hermit model. They were really called to silence and solitude. Uh, I decided I didn't want to continue with that. Um, but I really uh, had an inkling towards the priesthood. I was looking at diocesan priesthood as well. But by the time I was going to graduate from college, I decided that I really needed to take some time in the real world. world. So I had a finance degree and worked in finance for about six years, uh, investment banking, investment management, a very different route. And probably spending time in, in those worlds called me to really think again about religious life and the priesthood. And by the time I graduated Creighton, I was attracted to the Jesuits, their spirituality, their worldwide mission. So I entered there in 2009. I did my beginning of my formation in Louisiana, based in Louisiana, not far, ironically, from where I was born. And I actually, even though it, our home base was Louisiana, we spent a lot of time doing various mission projects and work. I spent time in Honduras, Nicaragua. After I 
I took vows with the Jesuits. I did graduate studies at Fordham University. And the summer between my first and second year, I actually spent a summer in South India, in Kerala, working with the Jesuits there, working at a school, and also learning about the the rite that I belong to, the Cyril Malabar rite. It's a very beautiful rite. I'm grateful to be part of having experience in both, both of these rites. And uh, so I left the Jesuits in 2012, discerned that was in my calling. But I really took from that time the spirituality, the call to really align oneself with the marginalized and to see Jesus uh, really as one with the poor. I uh, met my, my wife in 2014 on a CatholicMatch.com of all things. Um, turns out we went to the same parish. Uh, she sang in the choir. And I had, didn't even realize it. We got married 18 months later um, at that same parish. Right before our first child, we went on a baby moon. We went to Rome and actually got to went to the general audience with Pope Francis. Even though we weren't technically newly married, we got into the section called the Sposi Novelli for the newly married. And uh, my wife was pregnant. And I basically said to myself, this is my one shot to meet Pope Francis. Uh, I memorized a, phrase, a few words in Spanish. I, I know Spanish, but it's one of those things I'm going to actually use it. I better get my game right. So, I, so I'm with Pope Francis, and I basically ask him, pray, ask him to pray a blessing for our baby to be born. And then he was just kind of surprised. And just, but he kind of responded in the moment, and he prayed, and we got photos of it. Yeah, and I told him his name is going to be Matteo Ricci, which is the name of a Jesuit missionary to China. And so his face kind of like lit up. He's kind of like, all right, this is two random things. One <laughs> guy's asking me to pray for his pregnant wife and the baby. And then secondly, the baby's name happens to be a Jesuit missionary. Um, so that was definitely a, an unforgettable highlight. So we have two children. Um, Matteo is going to be uh, three years and we have had a baby during the pandemic. He's now four months. So two kids, uh, Working in finance, my wife works full time too, so we're just kind of, kind of managing life, so to speak. That's amazing. Thank you, Catholic Match <laughs> <laughs> sponsor. I, yeah, I'm trying to get that CatholicMatch.com money uh, for this <laughs> for the podcast. Hey, you sound also like you are super overqualified uh, to be the chaplain for where Peter is. <laughs> <laughs> and make no mistake, this is chaplain and, and, and scare quotes. I'm the chaplain and the staff apologist. Both are inside jokes from our mutual friend, Mike Lewis. But, you know, someone's got to do it. Yeah, Mike Lewis has been on the podcast. Uh, I, you know, I always, I always tease Mike. I'm like, hey. I have all your Where Peter Is folks here on our podcast. I got to get Melinda on next. But uh, There you go. Great, great group of people at Where Peter Is. Today, we're looking at this really unfortunate trend of anti-Asian hate and discrimination. There's this group called Stop AAPI Hate, and they noted a 150% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes since the beginning of the Pandemic, and I think some people have attributed this to Trump, uh, the twice impeached, disgraced former president, uh, because he would say things like "Kung flu, Wuhan virus, China virus," and this anti-Asian rhetoric he used. He racialized the virus by using this rhetoric, and and many Americans, unfortunately, I shouldn't say many, tiny group of Americans have responded to this xenophobia by attacking, bullying, really being hateful towards uh, Asian Americans in general. And so I want to talk to you about this, but I really want to start with George Floyd. It's been over a year since the death of George Floyd. What role did George Floyd play like, in your life, in your activism? Absolutely. Thank you. George Floyd's murder, that untimely death woke me up. Even though I had spent this rich time in the Jesuits, after I came out, I was going to mass. I was a good Catholic man, praying regularly, but I just felt like I was kind of midline. I was just kind of on the steady, even keel. And there's a line, actually, a person that both you and I follow, Shane Claiborne, God comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And I felt like that's where I was. I was comfortable. And when I saw George Floyd die, that just kind of shook me up and woke me up and said, I can't sit back anymore. And it really called me back to my faith in a real way, because we can't be followers of Jesus and sit by the sidelines when something like that happens. 
So I started looking around. I said, surely my bishops are, are speaking out and acting against this. And I'm not going to name names, but I started looking around the ones that I know are prominent. And I was like, dear God, it's either crickets or looking the other way or saying things like Black Lives Matter is um, incompatible with the faith. And I, I was just kind of shaking my head. By our baptism, you and I, Jose, and every lay person, even though we're not priests, we're not in the church hierarchy, we have this powerful gift. We're stakeholders of the body of Christ. We are members, and we have this gift within us, a census fidelium, that kind of alerts us like, hey, we need to be active in our faith. And this is the way I just felt the Spirit calling me to be active, prophetic even. I started, the medium I went to is I started writing. I said, this is the way I felt called to respond to some of these to some of these events. It's it's like I, in a way, this is a very loose analogy, but I felt like Saul, who became Paul, kind of seeing what happened to Saint Stephen and just being really shooken up. And so I started for me, the activism turned into writing. I started writing one article responding to one bishop about his stance on on racism and racial justice, and that turned into another article and another article. And then eventually I started writing for various publications, including where Peter is. And it really, it really opened my eyes to the faith, to really walking the walk with Jesus. And it's funny because before I entered the Jesuits, even while I was in the Jesuits, I considered myself more of an Orthodox conservative Catholic. And, uh, and to this day, I really don't fit into any box, but that experience of living and working with the marginalized taught me that we really need to be with the people who are suffering if we want to live the faith. You know, I can't go on marches because I'm in the high risk category. So and we're in COVID. So this is the way I felt called to activism. You know, it's one of those things. It's going it, to, there's people who are going to agree and there's people who are going to disagree. And I felt, and I've definitely seen both, but at the end of the day, we're called to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus wherever that leads us. And so right now, this is where it's led me. I will say I am grateful for many of the Catholics, many of the important voices I found along the way, including yourself, including the people I know through where Peter is, including someone that you and I know well, or gotten to know know of well, um, Olga Segura. So I was looking around who's kind of challenging our church leaders in terms of what's going on with racism and racial just injustice and anti-blackness. And I came across an article from Olga calling out the bishops that I was noticing were not doing enough of the, the leadership in this area. And I was impressed. I was like, my gosh, she's speaking what I've been wanting to hear. And I saw she's writing a book and published uh, at the time was writing and then soon be published a book on Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church, which I ended up writing a review on for where Peter is. So I started following her, following her writings, saw that she was going to be an opinion editor for National Catholic Reporter. And she was specifically soliciting BIPOC voices. And she really wanted to highlight that she noticed. And as you and I have noticed, I mean, a lot of Catholic media is pretty homogenous. And the Catholic Church is a universal church. Even in the U.S., it's a universal church. There are many voices. And so I cold reached out to her and said, hey, I saw you're looking for voices. I'd love to contribute. And she responded right away, yeah, send me what you got. So I sent a few ideas. And the one that she really gravitated towards was kind of reclaiming Jesus from the whitewashed image. And so I published that article at the end of 2020, um, basically looking at an image of a, a digital image of the historical Jesus basically looks like me and saying, how come this is not the image of Jesus I've seen all my life? And so that really, um, it was really through kind of talking to her, working with her, that opened my eyes to really integrate my identity, my cultural identity and my faith, and then also in line with racial justice. And so it's kind of these worlds kind of coming together, working together and she actually is now also the culture editor for NCR, and she invited me to write for uh, write in that regard as well. So, so there are two pitches she accepted, and one of which we published. It's actually about a band called Red Barat. That's an Indian fusion band. They do um, this Punjabi type of music called a bhangra, and they integrate it with like jazz, brass, and it's this really really cool vibe. And so, writing about that, integrating with the faith. And it just so happened 
it was the time it was going to be published was the Holy Week for us and the Feast of Holy for for the Hindus. And the Feast of Holy is about spring coming, uh, winter exiting. It's about good triumphing over evil, and which is very much in line with our Holy Week and the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of our Lord. And so to really see just kind of the integration of faith and how we can find God and find our faith in so many areas that are seemingly secular, it's just really profound. So I'm grateful for her to uh, <clears throat> really bring that about for me. I absolutely agree with you a thousand percent. Olga Segura, I first encountered her through another podcast called Jesuitical, referring back to the Jesuits there, uh, over at uh, American Magazine. And when I saw that she was writing the Black Lives Matter book, I was like, I really want this book. And so I was talking to some, I was engaging someone on Twitter and mentioned, when I get paid, I'm going to get that book. And she's like, hey, she reached out to me, sent me a DM where we follow each other on the Twitters. And she's like, hey, I'll just send you a free copy. And then, of course, I had to take it too far. And I was like, could you please sign it? And sure enough, she did. I was being greedy. So I got the, she sent me a copy. And sure enough, she wrote a nice little note for me in there. But uh, powerful, powerful book. And I'm trying to coordinate with her to have her on the show, on the podcast, to uh, kind of break open that book. Really powerful book. So I'm, gl I'm glad you discussed it. But there's another book that I have not read, but you have called How to Be Anti-Racist. Maybe you could talk about that book. What does it mean to be anti-racist? So is, is it good enough just to be like, well, I'm not racist, I don't use the N-word. Is that, is that good enough? Yes, thank you. So that book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram Kendi, I never heard of the term anti-racist, never heard of the book, never heard of Dr. Ibram until after George Floyd. And my wife actually ordered that book, and I remember sitting it on it sitting on our kitchen counter. I thought, "Anti-racist? What's this weird term?" Like it sounded a little too extreme at first. So my wife, who's Italian American and really wants to uh, walk the walk and and be an anti-racist, so she, after George Floyd, she formed a group uh, to work on anti-racism. And so I thought, all right, maybe I'll take a look at this book. And simultaneously, my alma mater, Creighton University, was offering a book series, a book club series on that same book. So I thought, oh, well, this gives me an opportunity to read the book and discuss it. So sure enough, I'll do it. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I started reading it, and it was like my eyes were open. And so there was this, this at the same time, so many things were happening. George Floyd, my faith, and then I started reading this book, and I just felt like my eyes were just getting opened even more widely. The way Dr. Kendi pre presented it, it's, it's very autobiographical. It's, it's not like those people are out there are the racist. I'm the one who's right. It's, it's like we all have it. We're all struggling. It's, it's something that we have these, these unconscious biases, these inequitable beliefs, and it's both in us, it's both, and it's in our society, and we need to overcome them. And it's not enough to just be like, oh, I'm going to be not racist or I'm not going to, like you said, not say certain words. But it's, 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 it's really almost like in, our, in the faith, you can name any sin. It could be chastity, it could be gluttony. It's not enough to just say, I'm not going to look at porn. I'm not going to eat that extra you know, donut or whatever. It's, uh, as St. Ignatius says, when it comes to vices, we need to pray and desire the virtue. And not only that, we need to practice the virtues. So if a person is, let's just say, desires um, to overcome gluttony, uh, they're going to uh, pray for temperance. And the way it works is St. Ignatius says, well, you're not just going to magically not desire donuts or not desire cupcakes. You're going to have the temptation for an extra sweet and you're going to want to exercise temperance. So it's, and it's the practice of it. The more we get into that habitual mode the the greater we we can we can we can overcome these things so same thing with racism the opposite of racism is anti-racism so it's overcoming the inequitable beliefs that uh, unconscious beliefs that we may have as well as working against the policies the practices in our society in our government in our world that promote inequity that pro that disadvantage certain races or give other races an advantage. So it doesn't matter. And and it's one of those things that's it's not 
favoring any race. So it's the idea of saying something like, oh, such and such race, all, all of them are racist. Like, that's not right either. It's it's really looking at equal footing for each and every race. And for me, that was that I really kind of read it spiritually and having a group at Creighton of alumni and faculty and staff to process it with really also helped me process how I hold inequitable beliefs and how also I've experienced racism. So I all of a sudden started to remember experiences of racism when I was in college, not slightly diverse, but not as diverse as, as I've grown up. And my fraternity was definitely homogenous. And yeah, I was kind of like the one Indian guy there with a very unique last name who got picked on a lot. And it was pretty clear. It was not just because they picked on everyone. It's, I was pretty particular. Anti-racism would call me, called me to speak up about it. So I actually contacted the university and I contacted the existing chapter of that fraternity to say, hey, I know this is 20 years ago, but I experienced racism and I wanted to let you know and, I, I want, and I'm doing so so that this doesn't continue. And I got quick response from the university, from, from the fraternity saying, hey, yeah, after George Floyd, we too realized we needed to do, take steps and we're working on diversity and inclusion and anti-racism. So it's great to hear that. And honestly, I also did the same thing. I looked back at my time in the Jesuits and it's great order, but no one's perfect. And I experienced racism there. And so I also took those same steps and you know was able to have a dialogue with what I experienced and how, how that can be implemented in the formation. And I heard a really good feedback that this is also something that is being worked on. And it's actually something that's coming from the ground up where the younger guys in formation are really speaking up and saying, hey, we really need to look at our history. We need to also reflect anti-racism among ourselves. Charity begins at home. So this these were really, really enriching exercises. But then it also kind of took into... How I, how I looked into my faith and it, it, it really fed into my writings and fed into basically taking Kendi's work on anti-racism. And I actually wrote an article for, uh, for, my, for Creighton on Kendi's work and then looking at our Christian faith and, and incorporate, incorporating the writings of the recent popes. Um, so, yeah, that, that's been a it's really enhanced my faith. You know, I, I would say that to follow Christ and to be an anti-racist are, are very um, inclusive callings because we're working for the body of Christ, which is all, all races. I mean, just like we're not going to say, we're, the hand can't say to the foot, we don't need you. We can't say to any race, like, you're less than or you're not welcome. And unfortunately, some of our parishes do that, whether it's directly or indirectly. So I feel like our call as by our baptism is to promote, promote anti-racism. No, that's so well said. And hearing you say repeatedly, looking back, I saw that I experienced racism or I was experiencing discrimination. Let me ask you this. Were you aware at the time that you were experiencing racism or is that something that you discovered looking back? Definitely the latter. So what was helpful about really looking at what I would call the sin of racism, looking at anti-racism, it made me aware of how I've experienced racism. I think these experiences are so shaming and painful that it's easy to just brush it under the rug and just move on. And almost society teaches us that. Like we, we, me as an Indian American, I have to assimilate. I need to fit in. I need to like let these things go. I need to, you know, I need to be okay with certain jokes if I want to fit in. And anti-racism teaches the opposite. It's no, you gotta tell people to stop that. Oh, I don't. That's being politically correct. No, that's or whatever. No, no. It's our faith calls us to love one another, and that's love every person of every race. Yeah. So it's not being woke, right? It's not being politically correct to want to treat each person with dignity of being someone made in the image uh, and likeness of God. And so, as an Indian American. Like, what pressure did you feel from society to assimilate? You, you mentioned that. Or, like, what myths are there around you know, your community, your uh, culture? Yes, there's what's called a model minority myth, which is inclusive of Indians, inclusive of Asian Pacific Islander. It's this idea that, oh, minorities do well in the U.S., 
I mean, look, look at these people. They work hard. They're able to get good jobs. They're able to make more money, even more money than white people and secure these positions. So yeah, there's, there's not racism. See, look at, look, look over here. And it's this kind of bait and switch because then it puts all of us as a monolith in this box. And if you deviate from that box and something's wrong. And the fact that we have to abide by a certain myth or stereotype in itself is wrong. No, we're individuals. We're people. We're not all doctors and lawyers and engineers or whatnot. We're human beings with so many different vocations and callings and personalities. I mean, I'm really grateful that there's been this uptick in of Indian Americans, Asian Americans in media. I mean, I remember Probably Russell Peters came to the scene maybe 15 years ago. I would never go to an Indian guy that became a doctor, especially one that was born and raised in, in this part of the world. Because if you were born and raised here, you had real dreams, and it was never to become a doctor. Let's be honest. I would go to an Indian woman that became a doctor, because when an Indian woman becomes a doctor, that means she really wanted to be a doctor. Because even her parents are like, sweetie, you don't have to become a doctor. You can just marry a doctor. A lot of different comedians and, and actors and actresses of, of various backgrounds. And it's really opened the, the path that, you know, Indian Americans, Asian Americans aren't just a certain, have these three, three vocations or three job titles. It's truly, we should be able to be anyone we want to be. You know, speaking of Russell Peters, I don't know if you're familiar with that comedian, but he's um, from Canada, Indian descent. He does a lot of jokes that are ethnicity related, whether it's Indian or others. But I actually heard him on a podcast recently, a podcast by someone also based here in Southern California. And he actually described the racism that he as an Indian experienced growing up in Canada. And here I thought, oh, Canada, they're not that racist over there. But, you know, he experienced it. And it was just kind of like eye opening to see how the racism that he experienced really caused so much shame so much difficulty for him in school, the amount of bullying, the amount of pressure. I mean, he was describing in his story, he actually went to like a special type of school for kids who misbehaved. Um, and But I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily like, had he not experienced this kind of bullying, had he got the right proper attention or, or had, had the bullying been addressed, probably none of that would have happened. And so I would say from a US perspective, there's this kind of idea of whether it's Asian American or Indian American being very passive and being prone to bullying, almost like an easy target. I remember in high school, talk about how bullies are stupid. So I, this is a Catholic high school, mind you, all boys Catholic high school, walk into my, walk in, you know, in between classes, there'd be these group of like four guys, shaved heads, and I'd never be able to see them. And they just yell down the hall, hey, Habib, Habib, Habib. It's like, first off, you got the wrong race. I mean, that's Middle Eastern or Iranians, morons. Uh, but secondly, how cowardly they got it. They got to do it in a, such a covert way in a group of guys. And I was a freshman. They were, you know, upperclassmen. When I finally caught him, I stepped right up to him. And I, you know, I wasn't a big guy at the time. And I said, look, you're going to say it to my face. And they were just kind of shocked. They're like, oh, uh, 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 I'll just get my buddy here to beat me up. I'm like, you guys are f losers and just walked away. And then they didn't do it again. But I felt like that. There were other Indian Americans at the school and they probably would have just, you know, looked the other way if, or, or just kind of put their head down and not done it, not stepped up, not stood up for themselves. And so that it, it probably empowered these bullies to think they could do that. And so that's a problem. We, there's a stereotype that we can be bullied. We can be run over and it's not just bullied. It's also in the workplace. Oh, we can get passed over. You can dump all this work on this guy. They'll just, these quiet people just work hard and they'll get it done while we other people will go on these networking events or move up in the company. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's all these, all these negative stereotypes, all these kind of putting us in the box. I mean, there's that, that legal case against Harvard with the Asian Americans on, on the, on the discrimination there. And that's just kind of an example where people get treated like a monolith, they get put in a box and it's just really destructive and unfortunate. And I just kind of want to switch gears back to um, the Asian Americans, especially with the, the, these recent murders and with what's going on with with all with the coronavirus. I mean, I mean this negative rhetoric when Trump came to the scene, it just made it seem like in 2016 or, or so, it became okay to also not be private about racism, whether it's to be vocal on social media and otherwise. And 
it, it's just this this can of worms has just been so destructive and harmful and saddening that it's manifested itself in in murder and death. I mean, one of the articles I wrote for Where Peter Is is in quotes the mortal sin of racism. How the sin of racism can have mortal effect, whether it's George Floyd, whether it's the Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta, you know, whether you can debate whether it's a mortal sin or not, but there are mortal effects. And I think this is truly sad. I started to really reflect on this theme. Asians, particularly Chinese and Japanese people, came to the U.S. in the 1800s. Filipinos came to the U.S. with the Spanish in the 1500s. And even there's even records that go as far back as 12th and 14th century. Koreans came to the U.S. in the 1900s. Despite being in the U.S. for this long, they're still not American. They're still not American enough. And that is just horrific. Whereas you look in the 1920th century, you get people from Europe coming over, whether it's Italians, Irish, Polish, you name it. And in the 21st century, they're American. They're in the club. They're accepted. And that's just the that just points to the problem of white supremacy, where certain people can be American, but certain people can't be American. And it's just such, such a harmful, harmful, harmful way that's been expressed in our nation and in our world. It's really destructive. And it's just really sad that no matter how long these people have been in this country, they can never be American enough. And that's just the message that, that's transpired through that. So I was at this party last week, and this guy came up to me, and he's like, hey, man, where are you from? So I told him, I'm from Queens, New York. Yeah. But wait, but wait. And then he's like, no, I mean, where are you really from? Which for those of you who don't know, that's code for, no, I mean, why aren't you white? Oh, that really kills me because it's that question, like, where are you really from? Yes. Right? You're not really an American. Where are you really from? And, and that reminds me of Senator Tammy Duckworth. She served in the Iraq War, and I believe she was a pilot of a Black Hawk helicopter. She lost both of her legs fighting for this country. She is an American and yet she still gets asked that question, well, where are you from? Where are you really from? And in fact, I believe she even said that her family goes as far back as the revolution and that people in her family have fought in every major American war. And she still gets asked, where are you guys from? That to me just goes to the depths of just the, the, the racism, the white supremacy. No one asks someone who is of European descent of one form or another, where are you really from? Oh yeah, you're you're just from here, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It it kills me. Ah, just it breaks my heart to hear that. But the question of passivity reminded me of this documentary, "The Problem with Apu." And I'll say this because I'm guilty. This is where I have to acknowledge my own sins, if you will. When this documentary came out, I'm a huge Simpsons fan. Me too. I was like, what the. You leave Apu alone. <laughs> Don't cancel Apu. Yes. And, and it, but it's in the wake of that, really, I was like, okay, there is a problem with Apu. You have made a very powerless enemy. Yes. And maybe we do need to sort of Thanos snap this character. But what I noticed in, in kind of researching this, there were a lot of uh, Indian Americans, especially younger ones, who defended Apu, and, and I think maybe some older ones as well, but what's the deal with that? What's the deal with people defending Apu who are themselves Indian American? Yeah, you know, that documentary also woke me up because growing up, I was happy that there was Apu because I thought, finally, we get representation. And it just didn't occur to me. It's kind of going through this exercise of racism and anti-racism over, over the last summer it didn't even occur to me that the way we can be accepted, Indian Ameri Indians or Indian Americans can be accepted in societies as a caricature. And not only a caricature, but someone being characterized by someone who's not even Indian. And Hari uh, Kondolobu, who's a comedian who refuses to use the Indian accent in his comedy, he refuses it. Um, so much so that it, he actually has a line where he's like, you want to hear the Indian accent? And he just drops the F-bomb. He's like, nah, F that. 
I mean, he's he's hardcore. But it wasn't until that documentary I thought, wow, I had just been oblivious to how problematic it this is. I mean, even when I was in the Jesuits, we would do these skits, and I threw on the Indian, Indian accent because I just want to be funny. And I realized, boy, I'm just complicit, and I'm just perpetuating the stereotype. And I mean, there are a lot of stereotypes about Indians that just kind of gets gets pushed under the rug. And I re- I'm really grateful that Hari pointed out how this really needs to stop. And it wasn't until after George Floyd that the actor, Hank Azaria, the voice actor, actually pulled back and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to voice up. I was unaware of how much relative advantage I had received in this country as a white kid from Queens. I didn't think about this stuff because I never had to. Yeah. And there were very good intentions on all of our part. And we, we tried to do a funny, thoughtful character. And just because there were good intentions doesn't mean there weren't real negative consequences to the thing that I am accountable for. And a lot of other um, characters or, or voice actors for ethnic characters decided the same. Like, yeah, we, we really need to stop this. I'm not quite sure why certain. Well, I can say this. I think it's, and it goes back to the model minority myth. I think you can find ethnic people on either side of the of the political spectrum, and you know, there's prominent Indians and Indian Americans who supported Trump, and there's prominent Indians and Indian Americans who are against Trump. If if people who buy into the myth, in my opinion, and who benefit from the myth, will want to perpetuate the myth. Plus, it's risky and it's harder work to oppose the myth and to oppose racism and to oppose white supremacy. It's very risky to put that target on your back. I mean, I'll give you an example. I Not the current city I live in, but the last city, I, I would often go up uh, before the city council and uh, would align myself with certain activists and people on the other side of the, uh, of the equation would want to caricature me on social media. And when my parents found out, they're like, oh, you better stop doing that. They can do some harm to you. But that's where a person of an ethnic background, that's where their mind goes like, oh, wow, you, you better keep your mouth shut. Otherwise, harm might happen. And unfortunately, as we've seen it in Atlanta, as what happened in the Midwest shortly after Trump was elected, a couple of um, H-1 visa uh, Indian Indians who work for, I believe, a tech firm just went, stopped into a bar, have a beer, maybe have a, a meal or something, got shot up by someone saying, what are you doing in our country? Get out of our country. I mean. Yeah, my parents' fear was not unfounded. There, There is a risk to oppose racism and to oppose white supremacy. It creates a target on our back, but, you know, that's following Jesus also has a target on your back if you're really following Jesus. Yeah, no, I totally agree. To build on what you were saying, you know, after 9-11, there were a lot of hate crimes directed against Muslim Americans, people who maybe looked like they were from Middle Eastern descent, Right. But because Americans are so ignorant, there were also attacks against Hindus, Sikhs, other um, Indian Americans as well. So I, I saw the, one of the first was a guy named Balbir Singh Sodi, who was a 52-year-old Indian American man killed in Mesa, Arizona, days after 9-11 by someone claiming retaliation for 9-11. He wasn't even Muslim. He was Sikh. Wasn't even from the Middle East. So... It's just incredible to me, just the range of ignorance and just racism that, that, that we have here in this country. And I want to wrap up here. I, I, could, I could keep going, but um, please, Matt, what can we do as listeners, as Americans, what can we do to, to be anti-racist, to, to combat racism in our lives, in our churches? Yes, it's a combination. It's a personal effort and it's a group effort. I mean, for me, I could say, Reflecting on racism, both that I've experienced and that I've committed, it's almost like as we as Catholics have the examination of conscience, or as the Jesuit prayer is the examine, the examine, which actually can look at your day and notice where where God was and where we where we gravitated towards God's grace and where we were not open or where we moved away from God and the grace that God was giving us. And Ignatius actually says you could do a particular exam and where there, maybe there's a particular sin you want to work on. So if we have the sin of racism. We can look at our daily lives. We can look at our history 
how God have we responded to racism in our lives? How have we committed? How have we experienced it? How can we grow from it and show us God how to and to, and to look at this through the through the light of faith? So there's there's a faith based way, and then integrating that with I would say the writings of Ibram Kendi were were would be extremely instrumental. Father Brian Massingale. Uh, wrote a book, Racism in the Catholic Church. That This is a 2010 book. So, I mean, talk about being ahead of our t- uh, ahead of time. Uh, that really is, is also valuable work in terms of looking at, um, looking at racism from the context of our Catholic Christian faith. Uh, the writings of Olga Segura, certainly um, Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church. So, there, there, there are definitely books that can be used to read on, to reflect on. But it's really a call that we can't be passive. We can't be silent. We can't be complicit. Silence is complicity. So if we're not willing to, when we see something racist happening, whether it's in our society, in our church, if we're, if we're not saying something, then we're, we're perpetuating, we're, we're letting it happen. So we need to also adopt that model of anti-racism in our church. I've seen this happen in parish settings where, oh, there's a missionary parish, father so-and-so from Africa, from India, from, from Latin America. And it's, it's kind of like, oh, uh, I don't want to go to such and such priest. I can't understand a word he says, or he's not one of us. And it's just in parishes, this dynamic needs to change. It needs to, we need to really look at our Catholic faith has four tenets, one holy Catholic and apostolic racism really tarnishes each of those four tenets. We're not one as a church. If, if we allow racism, we're not one body. If we're not able to accept members of other races, we're not one body. We're not truly Catholic, which means universal, which means that the church isn't just Eurocentric or white. The church is Cyril Malabar. The church is Chaldean. The church is Ruthenian. The church is in Latin America. The, the church is, is multicultural. So we're not one. We're not Catholic. If we do not recognize the dignity in one another, we're not holy. God gave us each. Um, God's dignity, regardless of race. We're not one, we're not holy, we're not Catholic, we're not truly apostolic if we allow racism in our church. How can we go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel, but at the same time, harbor negativity or harbor a sense of the person that I am seeking to bring God to is less than? Unfortunately, colonialism, and if we looked at our church's history, this was certainly rampant even in our evangelism efforts. But that's where anti-racism ought to work hand in hand and does work hand in hand with our Catholic faith and truly being Catholic. So I didn't really sum it up, but uh, there, there's definitely more there. But um, but yeah, that's that's definitely a start. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt. There's a lot here for our listeners to chew on, to reflect on, uh, to pray on. Uh, I know not all of our listeners are Christian or Catholic or what have you, but I think it, this is a really important issue for people across the, the faith spectrum to really grapple with, especially here in the United States. So thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me here on the podcast. I look forward to having you on as a guest again, and perhaps I can join you someday on where Peter is live. I hope so. I need to, I need to have time to write something. <laughs> <laughs> I need to have time. But um, again, thank you. You're awesome. God thank bless. you, Jose. You too. Thank you. All right, so in our final segment here, Christina and I are going to discuss something we've been watching or reading or listening to. What do we have this week? We have Resident Alien. It's on the Sci-Fi channel. Yeah, we both were going to talk about this because it's such a great show. Um, It stars Alan Tudyk. Mm -hmm. And that last name is very (laughs) memorable. So I'm not going to forget that one. Yeah. He does all kinds of great stuff. He's Steve the Pirate on Dodgeball. Um, uh-huh. He did the the voice of, I think it's K2SO on yeah. Rogue One. He did, yeah. So much awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. He's a great voice actor as well. But the concept of the show is you have this alien, played by Alan Tudyk, who is on a mission to create... Destroy the Earth, basically. Yeah, to do like an, a mass extinction event. Yeah. yeah. And his ship crash lands mm-hmm. in this little town in Colorado. And so as he's seeking shelter, trying to figure out how he's going to survive, he stumbles upon a cabin and kills a doctor there named 
Harry Vanderspiegel. And after he kills the doctor, he like he's able to change like his cellular, molecular mm-hmm. form form, and he becomes this doctor, Doctor Harry Vanderspiegel. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite hilarious as he's learning how to become human. Yeah, he has to learn the mannerisms, how to walk, how to speak, how to eat, and he does a lot of the cultural and language learning uh-huh. by watching Law and Order. Yes, and he kind of tries to model himself after Harry. Orbach. <laughs> just so random. <laughs> well, what do you like about this show? What I like about the show is just that he kind of has to fumble his way in being human. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even just telling a joke and, you know, he kills the doctor and throws him into this icy lake. But then he remembers, uh, this body is going to turn up mm-hmm. and I've got to go look for that body. I've got to get rid of evidence that there's two me's. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of hilarity that ensues from him trying to adapt to being human. But not only that, him being an alien and not having feelings or emotions like us humans do, uh, things could be very cut and dry and he has no remorse about things. Well, now that he's in this human body, he's starting to feel feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's really interesting to, to watch. But yeah. I think what's really funny in the show is there is a kid that can see him in his alien form. And it's like one out of, I don't know what the statistics are on the show. But apparently not a lot of people have this capability. But this particular kid does. And so he wants to kill this kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and this kid is just like screaming, deathly afraid of him. But as the episodes go on, he has more interaction with this kid. And so things develop into more of a humorous calamity type mm-hmm. of relationship. And I'm just curious to see where the show goes because yeah. we've watched, what, four episodes, four or five episodes? Four, yeah. And uh, it just keeps getting better and better. So, Well, what I love about the show is that here is this alien who thinks of himself as being so much more evolved and so much more intelligent. Yes. And yet he's so socially stupid, awkward. I- inept. Yeah. Inept. And so he'll say things that are inappropriate. He'll yes. use the wrong jargon. Uh-huh. Or he's very insensitive and blunt. And he'll hurt people's feelings or he'll put people off. Yeah. And everyone thinks that he's just odd. He's an odd duck, yeah. Definitely. But what he was hoping to just kind of chill out at his cabin and stay there. But then the town doctor was murdered. Uh-huh. And so the sheriff comes to pick him up and say, hey, we need you to investigate, help us investigate the murder of the town doctor. And he ends up getting roped into becoming... The temporary town doctor. Yeah. Until they can hire someone to replace him. And so he's forced to interact with people. Yeah. And you see just here is this advanced alien who just has zero ability to interact normally. Right. What we would consider to be normal. But what's funny is that these people that he's around are just so easy to write him off as like, he's just weird. Mm -hmm. He's just quirky. Like, that's just... The way he is that's the doctor and so he it's kind of nice for him that people are just so uh easily assuming that he's weird yeah <laughs> yeah and like you said when he tells a joke he's like ha, ha, ha. he has this weird laugh yes but then he's very conscious about the joke i told a joke yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 hilarious i yeah i thoroughly recommend this yeah show and what i think is funny too it's on the sci-fi channel yeah right they're not known for having good quality content yeah but this is definitely a step up for them yeah so yeah i agree check it out out. that's all for this week thank you so much guys for joining us on our humble little podcast you could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find the show. 
And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. And now, by the way, we are also on YouTube. So if you're a YouTuber, you can listen on YouTube. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Cheers!